Let me ask you to turn to Job chapter 1 this morning. Job chapter 1. I failed to mention last week that I'm taking a two-week break here from Mark. Um, We are going to conclude our study in the Gospel of Mark. But I thought it would be best to conclude that on Easter Sunday morning since we'll be talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so... um, In the meantime, I'd like to begin, as I did last week, this study through the book of Job. And uh, we'll pick it up right after the the week of Easter. My goal here in in this study is to show you the greatness of our God and to encourage you who are suffering now, but also be able to strengthen the rest of you who are not suffering so that you will be able to suffer loss well. You'll be able to suffer in a godly way. The reason we can become so bitter in life sometimes is because we attribute blame to God because of the circumstances upon which we have been put into. We wrongly think that God's view of us is shown in the way that we are treated here on this earth. But as we saw last week, there are often, I would think, unknown conversations that are happening in the courts of heaven between God and Satan. And so we must recognize that God's view of us is not based on how people treat us here on this earth, but on how He has promised to receive us on the basis of Jesus Christ when we persevere all the way to the end. We certainly can't know all the answers. We can't know the why of what God is doing. And many times we don't know what God is doing. We don't understand what He is doing in our lives. But we must believe that God is God and we are not. That God is in control ultimately and we are not. And that requires us to trust in Him. That we have to give ourselves to Him and dependently give uh, give our attention, our focus, put our dependence upon Him even when we don't see the reason. Even when we don't understand when there seems to be no end in sight. For Job, he perhaps was reading the Israel Sun-Times and had read about these sorts of things happening to all all of his friends, perhaps some acquaintances, some bad things that came upon them. But this time it was different because it came to his own house. It came to his own life. It was happening to him personally. How would he respond when all these things came all at once? Would he give up his relationship with God? And for us, how will we respond when these things happen to us? When we face the worst thing possible in this life, which is loss, whether it be a loss of health, a loss of of a job, a loss of a family member? How will we respond when suffering comes our way? Let's read Job chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 13 and read through the end of the chapter. Now on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their old, their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans attacked and took them. 
They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. And he fell to the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. When God's plans are not our plans, we must respond in worship to Him. When God's plans are not our plans, we must respond in worship to Him. First, when God's plans are not our plans, verses 13 through 19. When God's plans are not our plans. We see the setting there in verse 13. It says, Now on the day. This phrase is significant because we had just learned in verses 4 and 5 that Job would offer sacrifices to ensure that God would pour out His favor upon His children. Remember, this is during the patriarchal day when the, the father was offering sacrifices on behalf of his children. Notice what Job does in verses 4 and 5. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sister to, sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So, when those days occurred, what was Job doing? Job was offering sacrifices on behalf of his family. And this is exactly what's happening when all of this news comes to him. Job had just made peace with God. Peace with God for his own sin. Peace with God for his family's sin. And now this news comes on him like a sudden earthquake. What is Job thinking during this time? Is he thinking, I just made peace with God. Did I do something wrong? Why am I all of a sudden getting dumped on? I just made peace with God. Well, the Scriptures tell us how he responds later. But isn't that the way we often look at trials in our lives? our immediate reaction is, what did I just do? This trial came came into my life because of the way that I treated my wife just now. As if God is punishing us for what we have done. Is that the way we should respond when trials come? Job's initial response is not to question God, why are you dumping on me? but it is to trust God and to worship God. 
If you question God more than you trust God, then you need some serious spiritual reflection. You need to have God uh, open up and reveal your heart to you if you question God more than you trust God. Our very first response when things come our way, no matter how difficult it is, should be to trust and worship God. That's not something that you can do on your own. Something that only happens and can only be done by believers. Notice the structure of this passage. You, you heard this repeating phrase three times and then half of the phrase the fourth time. In verse 15 at the end of the verse, it says, the servant says, after, after he gives the news of the tragedy, he says, I alone have escaped to tell you. And then verse 16, while he was still speaking, another came and said. And then in verse, the end of verse 16, he tells the tragedy, I alone have escaped to tell you. And then verse 17, while he was still speaking, another came and said. And then it happens again and again. And in verse 19, again, it happens for the final time. I alone have escaped to tell you. Each one of these tragedies comes from a different place. Verse 15 talks about the Sabaeans attacking from the south. Verse 16 talks about the fire coming from heaven. Verse 17, the Chaldeans coming from the north. And then verse 19, the wind coming from the east. Job is getting inundated from every side. It's, it's kind of like the language that Paul talks about that he's, he's distressed and he's He's beaten in on every side. It feels as if his whole world is crushing in on him. Have you ever been submerged by one trial after another to the point where you say with Job in chapter 9, verse 18, I can't even take a breath. I feel like so many things are happening all at once. It's hard for, even me, for me to even get my mind around all these things. This is what Job is going through. The tragedies come one right after the other, and yet I can say with great confidence that every trial, every trouble, every persecution that comes Job's way happens and comes from, a, from the hand of a loving, sovereign God. And I would say the same to you. That every trial that comes your way, every difficulty, everything that you cannot uh, imagine that you would be able to overcome comes from the hand of a loving and sovereign God. While the calamity strikes, we have these four things listed for us. Two from enemy strikes and two from, we could say, nature. The first one is from an enemy attack in verses 14 and 15. We see that the Sabaeans come. We'll read verse 15. Um, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them, that is the donkeys, and the oxen. The Sabaeans were probably from Sheba in southern Arabia. They were traveling merchants at this time. They later became a, a, a great um, place to live. In fact, they became very wealthy, the Sabaeans did. You remember from um, Solomon's era, 1 Kings chapter 10, that the queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon to see if he was really as wise as everybody said that he was. And she came with many gifts. And this was because the Sabaeans over time, or from the beginning of their inception, were, were uh, really rebels. They would come and steal things from other people and they would uh, gain their wealth through stealing and other sorts of means. Um, notice how many animals they stole. 
it was verse 14 tells us they were donkeys and oxen. Verse 3 tells us how many they stole. <clears throat> you see it there in the middle, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 female donkeys. I mentioned last week this is, this is probably not including the male donkeys. The female donkeys were much more valuable because they could provide the offspring. So, probably a thousand donkeys and 500 yoke. Remember, that's a yoke is two oxen tied together. So, we're talking about two donkeys for each yoke. So, we're talking a thousand oxen and potentially a thousand donkeys. So, we're not talking about something that just comes up overnight. A couple guys decide, hey, let's go steal these animals. No, we're talking a couple thousand animals, at least, that they're trying to corral and steal. So in order to make this grand theft possible, notice what they do at the end of verse 15, or the middle of verse 15. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword. Now consider how many servants we're talking about. If all of these yoke of oxen were working at that time, how many servants would you need at least? Well, you'd need at least one servant for each yoke of oxen. So you'd need at least 500 servants if they were all uh, working at that time. And, and they would cover an, an enormous land mass for them all to be working at the same time. And yet, this is what happens. They're all stolen, and all the servants but one are killed by the edge of the sword. And so that means we have a large group of thieves that come and attack Job's property. And at the end of verse 15, we see our repeating refrain like a chime from a grandfather clock that says, and only I was the one to escape. I was the only one to escape and tell you. So the first attack is an enemy attack. They steal the animals and destroy the servants. The second animal we could call a natural disaster. This is a destruction of the sheep and the servants who were watching them. Verse 16, while he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. A fire of God comes down from heaven. What exactly is this? Well, it's difficult to know exactly what this is, but most Bible scholars believe this is a stroke of lightning. Scientists tell us that a single stroke of lightning can reach a temperature of 30,000 degrees Celsius, which is five times hotter than the surface of the sun. One single stroke of lightning. And so if you have a lightning strike on dry vegetation, you can imagine that it would quickly cause a brush fire. And in fact, in, in the United States, we have between three and five types of these fires that begin as a result of lightning strikes every year. I'm not trying to explain this away as some coincidence, but what I am trying to show you is that God often uses ordinary means to bring about suffering. You know, what, what's happening here is that God is not opening up the ground and, and swallowing all the people and then closing it back up like He's done in other places, like with the sons of Korah. But He's providing or, or, or giving this, this suffering to Job in a way that would just seem like any other natural event that had occurred. Notice verse 3, the number of sheep that were destroyed. The beginning of the verse it says that 7,000 sheep. 
Okay, they're all grazing out in the field. Here comes a lightning strike, sets up this fire. There's panic immediately. The sheep are consumed as well as all the servants except for this one who escapes somehow in order to tell Job what had happened. And so we again, at, again at the end of verse 16, we have the second stroke of the, of the chime that rings from the pen of the author as we see this only one man is left to survive this natural disaster. So we have an enemy attack, verses 14 and 15. We have a natural disaster. Now notice verse 17, we have another enemy attack. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, the Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. These Chaldeans hadn't settled in Old Testament Babylon at this time. The Chaldeans are the Babylonians. Prior to settling there, they were nomads. They would just wander around in different areas. They later would become, you remember, one of the greatest empires in world history under King Nebuchadnezzar. They were later taken over by the Medes and the Persians during Daniel's era. Notice how they attack in verse 17 by sending three bands Probably a three-pronged attack. Again, we're talking about a lot of animals, a lot of servants. It's not as if they just snuck up, opened a little hole in the the, uh, fence and just let them all out. Camels are probably harder to corral and to move than, than, say, the oxen or the donkeys. And so they probably had to come from three different areas, attack the servants and then corral all these camels and lead them away to their own land. Notice the devastation, how many camels were lost again in verse 3. You have 7,000 sheep there and then 3,000 camels. And then we have this phrase at the end of the verse, and I alone have escaped to tell you. It's as if Job is receiving one jab to the face after another. You lost your oxen and your donkeys. You lost your sheep. You lost your camels. But finally comes an uppercut, one that sends Job to his knees. And it comes by way of a second natural disaster, but it comes upon his most treasured possession in all of this world, and that is his children, verses 18 and 19. It's a natural disaster that kills Job's children. Verse 18, while he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Verse 19 says that a great wind came and struck the four corners of the house. Seven, uh, several theologians believe that this was a tornado. And it very well could be. A tornado would also be known as a great wind. But I would submit to you that it doesn't have to be a tornado. It could simply be a great wind. Like what happened in uh, central Missouri last Sunday night when high winds knocked down two buildings on one man's farm. Here's what the farmer, Richie Palmer, said about that event. About 9 o'clock, we had a pretty good wind come through. I don't know what it was, wind or a tornado, but it took a couple down at our feedlot. I think it was recorded that that wind that came through was 75, 80 miles per hour. And so you can imagine that 
just a natural strong wind could come without having to be a tornado. We don't know exactly what it was because the Scriptures don't tell us, but we do know that it was a strong wind. All the servants that were helping out at this dinner apparently were killed. Only one survived. Again, verse 19 repeats the refrain, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Look back to verses 2 and 3 because I want to show you the sum total of all of Job's losses from an earthly perspective. Verse 2, we, we find in verses 14 through 19 that he lost all seven sons and all three daughters in a tornado or some high wind. Verse 3, he lost 7,000 sheep to a fire. 3,000 camels were stolen by the Chaldeans. 1,000 oxen and likely 1,000 donkeys were stolen by the Sabaeans. And all of these servants mentioned here in verse 3 were killed. Some burned by fire. Some destroyed in the house collapsing. Many were killed by the enemies. So we're probably talking hundreds of servants, if not a thousand servants. They all died. And notice the end of verse 3. And that man was the greatest of all the men in the East. I said last week that that was referring to his wealth his status as a person economically. Now, all those things are taken away. And so what was said about him at the end of verse 3 can no longer be said about him. He's no longer the greatest man in, the, in all the East. He may still have some land, but he has no possessions. And all of his family is gone. Well, How does Job respond? In times of unspeakable tragedy, how does Job respond? Job shows us, shows us exactly how we should respond in verses 20 through 22. When God's plans are not our plans, verses 13 through 19, we must respond in worship, verses 20 through 22. Notice in verse 20 that Job did not suppress his grief. There's nothing sinful about grieving. Look at verse 20. Then Job arose, Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. And he fell to the ground and worshipped. After all of these, all of this news comes to Job, he finally has an opportunity to respond to all this tragic information. The messages had come right one right after another. It wasn't here's one thing that happened, and then he has time to reflect on it. Man, all those great servants that I had. I remember uh, this man and this man and this woman who used to serve me. And all these animals that I've trained from the time that they were small. He didn't have time to reflect on any of them. They came one right after another. And finally, when he has an opportunity, he he pours out his grief. In fact, in this verse, verse 20, five of the nine Hebrew words are verbs. Now, in English, it's translated with more words than just nine. But in the Hebrew language, it's nine words. Five of them are verbs. Arose, translated for us, arose, tore, shaved, fell in worship. It shows that Job is now active after he receives this news of suffering, of what is going to cause his suffering. It says that he tore his robe and shaved his head. You know these are signs of mourning in the ancient Near East. A robe was worn over a tunic. And upon the arrival of bad news, a person would tear this robe a person in Old Testament Israel particularly, 
And this was a sign of grief. Jacob did this in Genesis chapter 37, verse 34. When he found out that Joseph was apparently dead, he tore his robe. It was a sign of grief. And so this was a, um, a common thing for people to do when they were grieving. Turn to John chapter 11. Because I want, you, I want to show you that when times of trouble come, don't be ashamed to cry. Don't be ashamed to pour out your grief when times of trouble come. We have an example from our Savior Himself. Here, when He finds out the news of Lazarus, His dear friend, look at chapter 11, verse 33. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in spirit, and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. There's nothing wrong with pouring out, pouring out our grief in times of suffering. There's nothing sinful about crying out to God. Now notice, Job did not cry out, Jesus did not cry out, Why me, Lord? Not that sort of thing. But Job fell to the ground and it says in verse 20 that he worshipped. He worshipped God in his suffering. He worshipped God in his grief. And the only way that we can do that is if we do what Isaiah chapter 55 tells us. Turn there, please. Isaiah chapter 55. The only way that we can pour out our grief in a God-honoring way is if we recognize what we read here in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. Chapter 55, verse 8. God says to the prophet Isaiah, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. The only way we can worship God in our grief is if we recognize that God's ways are higher than our ways. That God knows what is best. And that what He does here is actually what is good for us and best for His glory. Turn back to Job chapter 1 because I want to show you this last point of commentary that the comment, that the uh, writer of Job gives to us in verse 20. It says that he tore his robe, shaved his head, signs of mourning and grief. He fell to the ground and he worshipped. Well, how did Job worship? Okay, We said that he poured out his grief. Is that worshipful in and of itself? Well, the way that he worshipped is seen in verses 21 and 22. Notice how Job worshipped. He worshipped in two ways. First, in verse 21, by confessing that God was sovereign over all things. Secondly, he worshipped, verse 22, by not blaming God. And these things really go together. Recognizing God's sovereignty, His control over all things, and not blaming God. That's how he worshipped. That's how we are to worship in times of suffering. 
Notice verse 21. He confessed God's sovereignty over all things. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Naked I came, and naked I shall return. Not that he would return to his mother's womb. That was not what he was saying. Or that he would return to the dust of the ground. He's not saying that either. He's simply saying that he came into the world with nothing, and he will leave with nothing. Everything that he accumulates between the time that he comes into the world and the time that he leaves is all grace. It's all a gift of God. He came to the world having nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring. And he will leave with nothing. He recognized that everything that he accumulated in life would be surrendered at death. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job is saying this, everything that I've received was given to me by God. Everything that I lost was a part of His plan. If I received it from God, then when it's taken away, that is also of God. And so no matter what, whether He gives or He takes away, I will praise His name. Because He is in control of all things. He gave it to me in the first place. How could Job say this? This is how we would expect to read verse 21. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and Satan has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God is the one who gives. Satan is the one who is taken away. And in a sense, that would be true. But what Job says here is that the Lord has taken and the Lord has, take, has, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. And as we'll see in verse 22, in saying that, in, in, in saying that God has taken away, He did not blame God. Notice verse 22. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Job wasn't saying, how dare you, God? How could you take this from me? Instead, he was saying, God, you are in control of all things, and so no matter what comes my way or no matter what leaves from my life, it's all a result of your sovereign care, your sovereign plan. And that's why Job could rest in the middle of a storm of trial. Because he, re- he remembered, he recognized that everything that he had was from the hand of God and everything that was taken from him was all a part of his plan. So he recognized God's sovereign control over all things. And then verse 22, he did not blame God. This is how he worshipped. He did not blame God. You see, true worship in the midst of suffering seeks to express God's sovereignty, that is, that God is in control of all things without passing blame to Him. Didn't Job just say that God took it away? How could he not pass blame? This is the question we have to answer. I mean, what's the difference between acknowledging that God is sovereign and blaming God? Isn't it the same thing? Same thing. John MacArthur says that to blame God is to charge Him with wrongdoing. To blame God is to charge Him with wrongdoing. So the difference between Attributing sovereignty to God, you are in control of all things. You have control over the good and the bad that comes my way. There's no blame in that. 
You're not charging God with wrongdoing. But to say that, God, you were wrong to do this, then that is blaming God. So we must never look at our circumstances and shake our fist in the face of God and say, you were wrong in saying this trial. I could have served you better if you hadn't sent it. You made a mistake, God. See, that's the wrong response. That is not a worshipful response. Job lived for eternity. He didn't worship God for the side effects of the prosperity that would come in this life. He recognized, like Jesus says, that his life did not consist in the, in the possessions that he had. Luke chapter 12, verse 15. It doesn't exist in the abundance of what I have. It exists in my relationship with God. He recognized that he came into life with nothing and that he would return with nothing. <clears throat> and so everything that came between then, the time he was born and the time that he would die, was all grace. All things belong to God and should be given to him as a gift. And if that means that God has the right to take something away, then so be it. I will bless the name of the Lord no matter what. You see, for Job, there is no entitlement mentality. I just made peace with you. I have done so many things for you. I've sacrificed so many animals for you. And what do I have to show for it? He didn't see that he deserved anything in this life except God's condemnation. He recognized that everything that he did have was of grace. He acknowledged God as the owner of all things and he was grateful for his relationship with God. That God has the right to do with the possessions that he has received, that Job has received, however he pleases. If he wants to give more, then great. If he wants to take them away, then great. I will never give up my relationship with God. So if you and I truly understand what it means that God is sovereign, then we will always say, no matter what comes our way, the Lord gave, blessed be the name of the Lord, and even the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Christian, are, we, are you willing to accept good from God and not adversity? Are you happy to receive the good gifts of God but are not happy to receive the trials? The only way that you'll be able to accept trials from God and see them as good is if you see the goodness of God behind the trial. That you recognize that God is actually doing this for your good and for His glory. Our tendency is to bless God in good times, in prosperity, in good weather. And then attribute everything else to Satan. And then we curse him. Say, God, you must not be in control because look what Satan's doing. But Job never looks at his circumstances in an immediate perspective. He doesn't say, oh, curse those servants. Why didn't we have more guards? Why didn't the guards do their jobs? They could have stopped all these marauders. Why didn't we make those foundations stronger? What were, our, what were my servants thinking when they made that house? Instead, he attributes all that has happened. He doesn't pass blame anywhere. He attributes all of what happened to a loving God 
And he praises God even though things were taken away. See, the good in life is not in the things or in the people. The good in life is in the sovereign plan of God. So you and I can have everything taken from us and still lack nothing. If we have a solid foundation in our relationship with God, we can have everything taken away and yet still lack nothing. Job feared God and turned from evil when times were good. Verses 1-3 through And Job feared God and turned away from evil Verses 14 through 19, when times were bad. No matter what comes in life, no matter what types of hills or valleys that you go through, are you, are you able to serve God? Our tendency in times of trouble is to say that God doesn't care. That if you just give me a little bit more, I'll serve you then. In times of prosperity, our tendency is to forget God. Well, we don't really need you. We've got all these things. Our family's life is good. Our finances are good. We don't need God. See, Job was, was steady. He had a steady relationship with God no matter what came his way. In times of great prosperity and times of great trial, it's not exactly the outcome that Satan was expecting, was it? Remember verse 11? You take all these things away from him, God, he will surely curse you to your face. What does Job do? He doesn't dip off and go, you know what, I'm giving up on God. His wife does, but not him. He says, no, I'm going to continue on. I recognize I have a loving God and no matter if times are bad or if times are good, I'm going to follow Him throughout. If we were living in Job's day and turned out the news, here's how it would come across perhaps. Job who's been number one on the Forbes 500 list for the last 52 months, has been the victim of bad luck. The first blow to his great wealth came when his farm animals were stolen by some scavengers. That catastrophe was followed by a blow from Mother Nature when lightning hit right in the middle of a brush pile, sparking a massive wildfire that quickly consumed his sheep and his servants. Immediately following that, he was raided of his camels, and if that weren't unlucky enough, After all of his possessions were devastated, he later received news that an 85-mile-per-hour wind killed his ten children in a freak accident. That's how it would come across in the news. There's no miracle going on here. It's just natural events that take place in the course of all sorts of different people's lives. And what is amazing is that they are just so natural. Job doesn't know what's gone on between Satan and God, does he? He doesn't know that there was a meeting between the two of them. And so my point is is that, that we often don't see God's hand in the trials that come our way. We immediately attribute it to something else other than God. We often don't see Satan's hand in the midst of our trials. We say, oh, well, that's just a natural event. We need to recognize that in all things, God is sovereignly in control. And even Satan is used to accomplish his purposes. Despite the trial that comes, whatever trial that comes your way, 
You need to, with great resolve and faith in the unchanging God, say with Job and with the hymn writer Horatio Spafford, who lost his family out in the middle of the sea, when he was coming back across that place where they had drowned, he wrote the words to the song that we sing often, It is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. Job recites this sort of idea. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I still have God with me. It's quite amazing to see how Job responded in the midst of such enormous persecution. But how would he respond over time? It's one thing to be to have a trial come upon us and us for us to be ready and to respond rightly to God is another thing to have a trial that continues on for weeks and months and years. Then what's going to happen? Are we going to continue in our faithfulness to God? How would Job respond in the end? Would he curse God? Would his faith waver a little bit? Well, we'll find out as we go through this book together. Let me conclude with one final exhortation for believers. Your response to God when suffering comes will not be worshipful, will not be godly unless you prepare yourself for suffering before it begins. So I urge you, prepare now for the suffering that will come in the future. If you're not experiencing great trial or great suffering now, then just wait a few months or a few years. It will happen. You're saying, well, what kind of message is that? You trying to jinx us? I mean, I don't want to hear a message like this anymore. I don't want to think about tragedy that's going to come to me or what's going to happen to my family or my possessions. How much more depressing can you be? Well, if you're so afraid of losing all those things that you have right now, then perhaps that reveals where your heart is. Nobody desires to have trial come their way. That's not what I'm suggesting. I'm not saying to to take joy in what you have now. Take joy in the things that God has given you. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that don't allow those things to take the place of God where if those things go away, then how can I even serve God? You need to be prepared now. Don't get your grip so much on your family, your wealth, things that can be used as good things in this life. Don't have your grip so tightly on them that when they're taken away, you just collapse spiritually. Enjoy what you have now, but recognize that it is a gift from God. And if it is taken away, then you will still stand up in the midst of trial. You will have to endure loss in this life. You probably have to this point, and you will, I'm sure, endure more. But the greatest loss that you could have possibly faced has already been faced for you by Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? The greatest loss that you could have possibly faced has already been faced for you by Jesus Christ because He took for you the wrath of God, the loss of a relationship with God forever. He already took that for you. And if you recognize what He did there, then all these other losses will seem very minor in comparison. I certainly don't want to minimize your trial. That's not what I'm trying to do. I am trying to maximize the grace of God in salvation. 
I'm trying to maximize God's greatness and His sovereign plan. You will not have to experience permanent fellowship, permanent loss of fellowship with your Father because of what Jesus Christ did. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily besets us and run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy who was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and was set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. The only way that you can stand up and, and be as strong as Job was, is to have an eternal perspective. And for us, that means putting your eyes on Jesus. Get your eyes off of the circumstances of this world and off of your family and your, uh, and your resources primarily and put them on Jesus. And the life to come and the promises that are there for all those who trust in Him. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into His wonderful face. And when you do, the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Let's pray. Father, You know our hearts. You know it's not pleasant to think through tragedy and trial. Many have had to experience deep loss in the last years and months. And we don't know what your plan is ahead for us, but certainly we all will go through trial in this life, some very deep trials. Other will go through life rather unscathed. But we know that all who live godly will suffer persecution in some way. All who desire to live godly, that is. And so we recognize that as Christians, as followers of you, even though you are in control of all things, we are not exempt from suffering but that we will go through it. And the test of a true believer is not that we will go through suffering or not, that true believers don't go through suffering and unbelievers go through suffering, but rather the test of whether we're a true believer is if we are able to stand up in times of suffering. And we're able to say with Job that all of it has come from you. pray that you would help us to think rightly about the circumstances that come our way. Help us not to wrongly pass blame on You. Help us not to explain it away as just some ordinary event. Help us not to, to simply uh, make it as the final cause of, of Satan's doing, but recognize that all of it was a part of Your good plan and that it was designed for our benefit, for our growth in Jesus Christ and for Your glory to make Your name known. Father, I know for me personally, the times in which I've seen the most amazing faith in other people's lives, in other believers' lives, when I've seen the most amazing uh, love for you was in times of deep suffering. And that really magnifies your name. When, when believers are able to have joy in the midst of a time of deep sorrow, that is unexplainable from a worldly perspective. And so I pray that You would give us the resolve, the strength to stand up in those times. To cry, yes. 
But to have joy in the middle of crying, definitely. Lord, we need Your help. We need Your grace. We depend upon it. We need to see it rightly. And often we take it for granted. We take for granted the the loss that Jesus took for us. So we pray that You'd give us the eyes to see, the, 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 the desire to exalt the Gospel and to make the name of Jesus known in our own hearts. Let it resonate within us. The Gospel is not designed for other people alone. It was designed for us as believers. We need to readily, or, or, uh, regularly go back to the foot of the cross and recognize our worthlessness in light of it. Recognize what He did for us in sparing us from Your wrath. May we never grow tired of learning more of Your grace and Your greatness. And in the middle of it all, even when we don't have answers and we may never have answers in this lifetime, we pray that we would trust You and we would put ourselves in Your hands and recognize that, yes, we must obey You, but we also must trust You. Step back and recognize that You are in control and that all things that happen to us come from Your loving and sovereign hand. We love You for directing every action, every course in our life. And we pray that You'd help us to love, us, love You more still. In Jesus' name, Amen.